Well, a remarkable month in which we, we say goodbye to the long-running Australian soap Neighbours. First aired in 1985, centred around that, that famous cul-de-sac of Ramsey Street. A, a, sort of a Australian suburban idyll broadcast to a, a breathless world. It was a, a vision of leafy low-density manicured topiaries and wraparound verandas. By the turn of the millennium, this is not 1985 anymore, that, that vision of Australian suburbs is changing, an increasing number of us moving to apartments, places like Ramsey Street being subdivided into, into various accommodations. And, and the modern Australian suburb, well, we're not in Glen Waverley anymore. Uh, suburbs now stretching into the, the semi-rural boundaries of vast urban swathes. Those places are a very different kettle of fish. So as the sun sets on neighbours, what's to be made of, of that suburban vision? What can we say about the nature of modern Australian suburbia? You could probably do no better than to hear from the, the guests we have gathered. They have collaborated on a new book, which is titled Suburbia in the 21st Century, From Dreamscape to Nightmare, uh, published by Rutledge. Uh, Paul Mangan is its co-editor. He's Associate Professor in Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Western Australia, and he's joined by two of the book's contributors, uh, Carol Bosman, the Head of Architecture, Planning and Design at Griffith University, and Elizabeth Taylor, a Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning and Design at Monash University, Welcome to you all. And, and Paul, can we, can we begin? Let's sort of, well, look not so much to the definition as the origin of our terms. When did the idea of suburbia first appear and how, how was that word used? Thanks, Jonathan. I think we can go back actually to ancient times and particularly ancient Rome and even in ancient Egypt where the walled city seen as the, the urban core and the urban centre. And outside those wall, ancient walled cities, there were uh, isolated settlements, isolated dwellings, basically. And we see that, that basically as the, you know, we can see that as the commencement of, uh, of the suburbs because the, those spaces outside the walled city were secondary. They were subservient to, uh, to the walled city. Which is fundamental in the nation of the suburb. The word says it all. It does. And I mean, over time, obviously, that, that kind of secondary social, economic, physical, cultural position of the suburbs has endured all the way through to today. When do we hear the word first used? I think it probably emerged in around about the 1700s. It begins to first emerge when really around kind of, I suppose, the industrialization period. In England, when industrialists and the bourgeoisie started to build fancy houses, basically, out in the countryside, so we begin to kind of see it, I suppose, the, the way that we use the word suburb today and what most people would recognise as the beginnings of the modern suburb. Carol, that, that comparison that I, I drew at the beginning between that, that sort of neighbour's leafy enclave of the 1980s and... The modern Australian suburb, and this is a universal experience in cities across the globe of very quickly expanding urban areas. What are the, what are the, the key elements in, in change in, in, in that sort of period? The main change, Jonathan, is to do with everyday life, with politics, the way we engage with each other, the way we engage with, with the gadgets and things around us. The early dichotomies of home and work and male and female and, and what it meant to be a mother or what it meant to, to go out to work are no longer the same. So these things change the whole nature 
of where we live, how we live, and consequently, the nature of our suburbs. So while sometimes the, the building and the architecture and the planning doesn't always keep up with the ideal of you know, a contemporary lifestyle, nonetheless, people's ideals shift and change. My, my passion has been active adult lifestyle communities for aging baby boomers. This whole concept of a gated segregation by age, I find, although I am a baby boomer, terrifying. The, the, there's a broader question there, Liz, to, to bring you in here. And, and I, I wonder how much the, the suburb represents an ideal and how much it represents all that is possible. Um, it, 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 what's the balance between those two things, do you think, socially? The ideal and the possibility. Yeah, I think it's interesting when um, Jonathan um, Paul was talking about the early use of the term suburbs in those kind of wealthier exurbs and then linking it into the garden city movement and that progressive idea that you could have the best of both worlds, that you could be connected to the economic opportunities of the town. And that part of the definition, which is movable, of course, of suburb, is that connection, the commute, the work in the city and retreat to your, you know, semi-rural plot of your own land in the suburb in, in the evening and get that balance. There is that progressive legacy of suburbs, but then you have on top of that some of the kind of unintended forms that's taken. So while some of the early suburbs were really built around streetcars and public transport access and the, the train access into the city, throughout most of the 20th century it's become about access to the car and housing the car and I think some of the uh, some of the loss or the idealism that still draws you know that tension people are drawn to the suburban way of life in part because of what it could represent it could be that neighbor's ideal of wandering in the street or Carol mm. mentioned the grandchildren wandering in the street the reality is now that children in in suburbs in Australia at least don't have that kind of free-ranging lifestyle anymore so what you actually get when you buy it isn't necessarily what you even got uh, 20, 30 years ago when Neighbours was, was at its peak, let alone in the, the mid-20th century or, or earlier. It seems, Paul, almost a, an idea that hasn't scaled very well it, it, in, it, in its sort of modern execution at, at vast exurb scale. The things of sort of human scale, the things that made these places attractive to individuals and families are uh, being lost in, in this sort of vastness of the modern suburb. I would disagree with that to some extent, Jonathan. I think critics of suburbs have tended to describe them as what I call blandscapes. Hmm. And I think some of the, the issues that uh, both Carol and Liz are highlighting there are points to what I'm also calling now suburban environments or blendscapes. And they can be blended with both positives and negative attributes, social, cultural, morphological, and so on. And I think that we have a, an amazing constellation of suburbanisms, different ways of living, basically, that exist out there beyond the bounds of the um, of the CBD, basically. People's ideas are shifting around. It may not be so much about suburb as the space. It's probably ground down into something more localized and more micro in terms it's about people's home and house where it is both a home and a capital accumulating asset. Yeah, the book looks at many case studies. I mean, predominantly Western, in those countries that you analyse, Paul, in the book, does, does the idea of, of suburbia vary wildly? I think you're suggesting there that there, there's, there's great range in what this conjures. Uh, I think there are a great range, particularly in uh, a 
now the demographic structure in suburbs, because it's not just the nuclear family anymore. We talk about ethnoburbs, particularly in the US, for example, where we have seen what's called Asian flight and black flight out into the suburbs. Atlanta is probably a really good example of this in terms of African-American suburbanisms. So there, there is that kind of variety of things going on out there, basically. Carol, do suburbs foster community? Do they foster connection or do they add to it that, that sort of modern sense of atomization? Oh, Jonathan, I think this is the million dollar question. <laughs> I, <think. laughs> I call it ideals of community because everybody thinks of community as different. Everyone's ideal of what that social connection is because basically it's a social connection isn't it my understanding and it's limited of psychology is that that human beings need other human beings we need Mm. to interact we need we need to be able to to smile at at our neighbor or to you know to greet people in the street or to 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 have that connection because it's part of what it means to be a human being jonathan if i could just come in there maybe with uh, another factor here so i i agree with carol here it's about individuals who who create and define what a community is but if we come back to the the ideal notion of suburbs when we had mass suburbanization in the in the post-world war ii period basically what was really interesting of course the division between work and home in, the, in that 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, women were very much anchored in suburban spaces and in suburban homes. But over time, of course, with the rise of feminism, more women have participated in the workplace. So the idea of community and our connections to the place where we live has been redistributed because the majority of us now basically work. And our community, I, I would postulate this is that our communities are more mediated via who we work with and our workplaces, basically. And yet, it, it, Liz, this is such an interesting tension between human need and then the, the needs met in the typical sort of suburban development. Or even, even Jonathan, just in the built environment, I'm listening yep. to some of this conversation and thinking, in a way, you're hitting the limits of just how much you can read or understand about the diversity of people's lives and hopes and experiences just from looking at a place. And as planners, we're trying either to understand or to do it better, to plan it better. When you look at a house that it's sort of enclosed looking. It's a lot about buying the home and buying the interior of the home. And then your connection to community is largely through work or consumption. That kind of traditional, if you could use the word planning approach of thinking, how do you plan a community and create facilities where people intermingle? It doesn't necessarily um, measure up in, in the way we live now. And that's some of the mm. kind of changes that are happening in the suburbs is not only change, it's change we can't necessarily fully understand because there's such a such a variety in how people live in the suburbs. And I was just out in the west of Melbourne yesterday with students where half, half a million houses are going to be built between uh, Melton and Caroline Springs within the next 10 years or so. Mm. Those houses get built long before any community facilities or even the shopping malls are built. So people are making connections in, in other ways that maybe planners can't manipulate as easily or even even though the sales pitch uh, of the master plan community is still the child with the blade of grass and the you know it says your new community awaits. We've all seen those signs, and I suspect the reality doesn't quite measure up. I mean, the, Paul, is this, is this a universal global experience, or is this a function? You know, in this country, we are so bound up in in home as as equity item, as as a, a thing of, of substantial life investment, and and our suburbs, therefore, 
are propelled by the need for return. They are instruments of capital. And a lot flows from that, in particular, the sort of the diminishment of, of planning aspects in a lot of these spaces. Is that a typical international experience? I think, yeah. I mean, because, you know, we, we live in a capitalist society, whether we like it or not, and it is the dominant way that influences our lives, basically. People who get their first foot on the housing ladder, as we, as we say, mm. that ne- necessitates moving to somewhere in the outer suburbs, and the outer suburbs are forever going out further and further. I'm wondering, Liz, in terms of planning, how much does the modern reliance on on the meta-universe, on on the the virtual world in which we spend so much of our life, how much does that change or excuse um, the the planning regimes around new development? Uh, Excuse is a good word to use, Jonathan, there. Um, Well, for one thing that, that there's just a big shift in the timing of the provision of of community facilities and whereas certain aspects and i'm focusing here on australia of the suburban development process have have improved radically over the past few decades things like sewerage and lighting and roads drainage they're all going in first whereas we used to have what were called heartbreak streets where the houses went in even before there was a, a drain or and you had the pictures of the women getting stuck in the mud with the prams and things like that so that that has improved even that questionable or controversial um, figure, which is the shop, the enclosed shopping mall, which is a function of 20th century trends in automobility and the suburban uh, relationship between home and consumption, even that is vulnerable to these changes in how people uh, form community or form their identity. So the, the fact that we use the word bricks and mortar now to describe a physical place to go shopping, yes. that's, we've now, so the, the history of the shopping mall is that it was uh, Victor Gruen, the Viennese architect, he was trying to recapture the European experience of a a, a downtown um, experience of just public space and wandering and being communal, seeing other people, and to capture that and recreate it in a context where people drove in suburban environments. So his solution was to enclose that space and have a lake or ocean of car parking on the outside. And he had that sort of fabulously ironic experience of having created something that he that he hated. But the mall <laughs> itself, <laughs> the genius of... of um, but there is a genius in it, and, and it serves that function of, of, of community. I, I guess, Paul, the, the other sort of reality in, in the modern world is that maybe these days we even lack the castle. Um we are all simply on the outside of nothing in particular. Well, well, it depends what you define as the castle, because if we think about metropolitan regions as a constellation of suburbs, you know, we, we will talk about, well, over east um, in Sydney and Melbourne, and uh, you'll talk about the eastern suburbs. So the eastern suburbs is, you know, in, in a sense for many people uh, in Melbourne and Sydney are these kind of gated, salubrious, wealthy spaces. It's the western suburbs here, of course, over in Perth. And everywhere outside of that, that is just kind of, you know, is the landscape because you have the acceptable McMansions in the eastern and the western suburbs. Whereas if you if you go to kind of older suburbs, I'm thinking of a particular couple of places here in Perth where um, Italian migrants in particular, for example, built very large houses, which probably would have been the first McMansions. Mm-hmm. Those, those type of homes and that morphology is derided. For me, it's an indication of those migrants' social mobility. It's They're wearing their achievement, you know, basically uh, on their sleeve and saying, look, I have arrived or we have arrived. 
what I'm working on at the moment with Rosier Kyle, who's another contributor, is this notion of the brutal scape, and that operates at a variety of scales as well. Um, Paul, I'd like like to say that that's still that migrant role came out in in Robin and my chapter as well. So overwhelmingly, certainly in Melbourne, the majority of new permanent migrants, they, there's a portion of people that go to the the CBD, and that's often capturing um, international students and things. But most international migrants are still moving to the the outer suburbs and the new suburbs, and and we didn't do enough research in that to say whether that's by choice or by affordability, it's no doubt some combination of the, the two. That's, there's still that strong appeal of your own home, uh, your own piece of land that that is being um, mm. taken up by many new migrants. And but the sort of caveat that I add, the sort of cautionary feelings I have about the suburb as it functioned as, as a regulatory space, is that that role is still really important. But the more um, the suburb, the new suburbs are function of planning regulation and also the corporate level of control. So most of these new suburbs have pretty heavy covenants on what you can do to your house, what it looks like. And the the only public space is really, there's some passive space, but the, the corporate mall is the only public space. What are the opportunities beyond living there to kind of be visible and ex- and meet and express a sense of place, if that is important to people, they're, they're fairly tightly controlled and, and it's in, going to be interesting to see how different migrant communities, how different suburban communities find ways to adapt and express their presence in their community in suburban spaces when there is such a control on, on how you live and what you can do in those spaces. Paul may disagree, but I, I sort of think that the sort of capacity is, hasn't stayed the same, put it that way. I wonder, Paul, just in, in closing, is, is is this form of living a thing that we are stuck with? Uh, is, is there Are there other possibilities for our cities that we are yet to consider or, or, or create or is the, the continual expansion of the flat expanse, is that the nature uh, of modern urbanism you know, from here as far as we can see? Jonathan, look, my view on it is, I mean, the, the suburbs aren't going away anytime soon. And in a piece of work I did a, a few years ago, I, talk, I kind of raised the idea of, will we ever reach peak suburbia? And, you know, planners have been trying to regulate suburban expansion and I, I prefer suburban expansion or suburbanization. I really, I'm really against the idea of this term suburban sprawl. But planners have been trying to control and manage suburbanization for you know over the past 30 or 40 years here in Australia and else, generally elsewhere, and they've failed basically. So I think it's here for the foreseeable future. What, what will happen is that there will be transformations within new suburbs as well as old suburbs, because we now talk about not just urban regeneration, we're talking about suburban regeneration. So as that middle ring suburbs are aging, we're beginning to see densification in there. So it's a, it's a constant evolution uh, for me, basically. I guess at the end of the day, what we want, though, is, is good neighbours, if I can somewhat laboriously <laughs> return to that theme. I was wondering how you're going to drink. drink yeah. Look, thank you. Thank you, three. That uh, This is so much uh, the nature of our modern world and so much to discuss within it. Um, the book um, is Suburbia in the 21st Century, From Dreamscape to Nightmare. That's in, in shops and libraries. And we were, we were talking to uh, three participants therein, Paul Mang and Carol Bosman and Elizabeth Taylor, urban scholars and contributors to that new work. And this is Blueprint on ABC RN. 
Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.